God, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would be kind and gracious to us in giving us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, we pray that by your spirit, your word would pierce our hearts. God, it would convict us of the sin in our lives. God, and it would conform us into the image of your son. We ask that you do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On July 16th, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., along with his wife Carolyn and her sister Lauren, boarded a small single-engine plane to fly from New Jersey to Massachusetts. At the time, Kennedy was a licensed pilot with about 300 hours of experience. However, Kennedy had not yet been qualified to fly by instrument only. When their flight had been delayed until after dark, one of Kennedy's flight instructors offered to come along with him. He turned him down saying, I want to do it alone. The flight would consist of 200 miles on a dark moonless night over a dark ocean. The plane would never reach its destination and all three passengers were killed. And during an investigation of the wreck, it turned out that there was no mechanical or navigational issues. Rather, it was likely that because of Kennedy's inexperience, he placed his trust in what he thought he could see rather than what his instruments were telling him. It's a really tragic story, but it's one that reminds us of this really important truth, that oftentimes in life, where we place our trust determines the direction our life is headed. And I think this is especially true in situations where we feel blinded and unable to see, when our circumstances are challenging and we lack clarity. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. In the book of 1 Samuel, we see the nation of Israel at a very pivotal moment in its history. They're transitioning from being led by judges to becoming a monarchy and having a king. And you know, even though scripture foreshadowed Israel one day having a king, it says that it was the motivation of the people at that time that was just heartbreaking. 1 Samuel 8 tells us that the people wanted a king so that they could be like all the other nations around them. They saw what the people around them had and they thought that that's what they wanted too. But you know, every time God's people want to be like the rest of the world around them, it never turns out very good for us, does it? And God said that in doing that, they were ultimately rejecting him as their king. And the prophet Samuel, he did everything he could to warn the people and tell them exactly how bad it would go for them. And it would go very badly. But still they insisted. So God gave them exactly what they asked for. And the first king of Israel is this man named Saul. And Saul was exactly what the people thought they wanted. He was tall, he was handsome, he was the warrior type that could lead them into battle. And you know, things actually started going off pretty good for Saul. He has this huge military victory, and it looks like he's the, the exact king the people wanted. Unfortunately, it doesn't last very long. And we're going to pick up Saul's story in chapter 13. It says this. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. 
Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. These first couple of verses here are kind of setting the stage for what we're about to see happen. So it appears that the Philistines are this growing threat to Israel. And in response to that growing threat, King Saul decides he needs to do something about it. So he gathers up this army. And Saul's son, Jonathan, he takes a group from that army and he successfully attacks this Philistine outpost. Then Saul makes a big deal about it and the people join and gather Magilgal. And it says that Israel had now become obnoxious to the Philistines. I like how the NLT translates it. It says the Philistines now hated the Israelites more than ever. So then we see this response from the Philistines. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Haven. So in response to Jonathan's successful attack, the Philistines gather their own army. But their army is a lot bigger than Israel's army. And their army is described as having soldiers as numerous as sand on the seashore. You know, which is really interesting because where else do we hear that metaphor? You know, it's the same phrase that God used when he promised Abraham what his descendants would be like. But now we see it actually turned against Israel to describe their enemies. And there's a little bit of debate about the exact size of this army being described. The original text has a little bit of confusion. But to give you a rough estimate, it was probably around 40,000 soldiers, including those 6,000 horsemen, and 3,000 charioteers. So Saul's army is vastly outnumbered. So what's the response from God's people? It says, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. The response is fear. Some of the men try to hide anywhere they can. Some of the men just take off and leave altogether. And the ones brave enough to stay are quaking with fear. You know, Jonathan's victory that once looked so promising now seems to have brought upon them this terrible situation. And it's in this hard, difficult situation that we learn a lot about what kind of king Saul really is. Continues. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. So it appears that Saul was instructed by Samuel to wait for him and he would show up in seven days. And remember, Samuel is a prophet and priest from, of God. 
However, on the seventh day, Samuel's still not there. And you can just feel the pressure Saul must be facing here, right? The army that hasn't yet deserted him is starting to scatter. There's this huge army just lurking over him. Samuel's not there. Saul decides he's got to do something about it, right? So he makes this offering. And and the thing that I want us to understand about this is when Saul makes this offering, he's taking what isn't his to do. Now, as a prophet and priest of God, Samuel was the one who was ordained by God to make that offering. So at first glance, you're like, well, is Saul making an offering to God really such a bad thing, right? He's in this hard situation. So him turning to God for guidance, right? Isn't that, isn't that good? But I want us to see that Saul's job in this moment was to wait. He already had his instructions from Samuel. And essentially what Saul is saying here is God, I don't really trust that you're in control of this situation, Saul was supposed to trust as he waited. Have you ever had to do that before? Have you ever had to just wait and trust for God to take care of something? We don't like to do that, do we? We need to know how he's going to take care of it. We need to know when he's going to take care of it. We need to be a part of him taking care of it. Waiting and trusting, that's hard to do. It continues, just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. You know, it's really interesting here that Samuel doesn't even have to ask Saul what he did. I don't know if he could smell the offering in the air, but he knows that it's bad. And Saul goes out to greet him and he's met with this question that I have to imagine just just pierced Saul. What have you done? You know, it's a question that echoes what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 when they sinned against him in the garden. What is this that you have done? And the response of Saul is much like the response of Adam and Eve and much like our own response in our lives when we're confronted by our sin and our rebellion. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me, and I have not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. So when confronted by his sin, how does Saul respond? He's got every excuse in the book, doesn't he? He says, the men were scattering. You didn't show up when you were supposed to, and the enemy army was going to attack me. Saul blames everybody else but himself. The army, Samuel, the enemy, the people around him and his circumstances. And we're really good at that too, aren't we? When things just don't go our way, our first response is to just throw out the excuses. Saul even has one more excuse at the end there, and that's his motivation. Saul's making this claim that he's just trying to be spiritual, He's just trying to seek out the favor of the Lord. Surely my motivation was right. And we use that excuse too. Yeah, I know things didn't turn out very good in the end, but at least my heart was in the right place. Doesn't that matter? You know, a couple chapters later, Samuel is again rebuking Saul and he reminds him of this important truth. 
Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Guys, the thing I want us to understand here is that it wasn't Saul's job to try to figure out how to win the battle. It wasn't Saul's job to try to figure out how to control the people. It wasn't Saul's job to worry about where Samuel was. It was Saul's job to trust God, to know that even if the army was twice as big, even if every last soldier deserted him, even if Samuel never showed up, that God could still deliver him. But it was Saul's lack of trust that led him to disobedience. And the same is true for us as well, isn't it? That at the very heart of our own sin and our own rebellion is this basic lack of trust that God is good, that he is sovereign and in control. When we really don't believe that he will show up and we think we need to figure out the answer. When we think we need to get control of the situation. But the truth is our job is to trust to trust that he's in control even when we don't see it. To know that no matter the circumstances, if we have a deep trust that leads us to obedience, then we're exactly where God wants us to be. Continues, you have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin. And Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. So Samuel tells Saul he did a foolish thing. You know, when we read the Old Testament, that word fool has a very specific meaning. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that verse isn't just talking about an atheist who would verbally claim that there's no God, but it's talking about the person that lives their life like there's no God or lives their life like God doesn't really matter. And that's what Samuel is saying Saul's actions revealed about him. And because of Saul's disobedience, God was going to take the kingship from him. He was going to give it to somebody of his own choosing. And I think when we hear that, we might think, man, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? Like we know Saul really messed up here, but to completely remove him as king? Doesn't everybody sin? Could there be anybody that can be considered a perfect leader? But we need to remember when when Samuel does call out Saul, He has every opportunity to repent and to turn away from his sin and to confess, but he doesn't. He just digs in his heels and he insists it wasn't his fault. You know, every person sins, every leader makes mistakes. In fact, the man after God's own heart that was gonna replace Saul as king, he too found himself in a pretty similar place to this. After David had sinned against Bathsheba and then had her husband killed in battle, the prophet Nathan came to David and confronted him about his sin. Nathan explained in great detail what David had done and what the Lord would do to him because of it. And this is how David responds. 
Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David doesn't give excuses. He doesn't try to justify his actions. He knows he's wrong. He knows he sinned against God and he's broken over it. And that's the difference between Saul and David. You know, the rest of chapter 13 goes on to describe just how terrible and hopeless the Israelite situation is here. The Philistines began to surround them. The Israelites have no sword or spear to fight with. They actually even had to pay the Philistines just to sharpen their farming tools. Just this all-around hopeless situation. But despite Saul's disobedience, God wasn't going to abandon his people. God was willing and ready to rescue his people, and he was going to use a son to save. In chapter 14, the story shifts over to Saul's son, Jonathan, and his armor bearer. And it appears that Jonathan and his armor bearer had left the group without anybody knowing. And they head off towards this Philistine outpost. Look what it says in chapter 14, starting in verse 6. Jonathan, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Look at how Jonathan refers to the Philistines here, because this is really significant. He calls them those uncircumcised men. And by doing that, Jonathan is calling out the fact that these are not the people who are in covenant with God. These are not the people who have been given the promises of God. These are the enemies of God. And I love this powerful statement of faith by Jonathan. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Because that's what faith that trusts looks like. George Mueller puts it like this. He says, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. So despite this terrible, hopeless-looking situation around him, Jonathan trusts. And he's not worried about all the other circumstances. He's not worried about what other people are doing. He acts in faith and he trusts. He trusts that nothing can stop God from saving his people. And you know, that type of faith, it's contagious. Look at the response from the armor bearer. He says, do all that you have in mind. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. You ever know somebody with that type of contagious faith that you just can't help but to be encouraged and inspired anytime you're around them? You know, when I look at Jonathan's life, I can't help but to wonder what kind of king would Jonathan have been? Think about all these amazing qualities he has. He's loyal, he's fearless, he's trustworthy, he's full of faith. But sadly, because of the actions of his father, he never gets to become king. And it's really tempting for me to feel bad for Jonathan, to kind of feel like he gets the short end of the stick, right? But you know what the really amazing thing is? Jonathan never felt like that. Jonathan knew and embraced this idea that the kingship belonged to God, that it was his and he could do with it as he pleased. And Jonathan knew that David was the one that would take the place that so many people thought was his. And yet he loved and supported David more than anybody else. 
Guys, that is trust. The passage continues. Jonathan said, come on then. We will cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So what's Jonathan's great military plan here? He's vastly outnumbered. And he says, come on, let's go. We'll show ourselves to them. And I'm not a military expert, but I'm pretty sure having the element of surprise would be a tactical advantage when you're outnumbered, right? But again, this shows us where is Jonathan's trust? It's not in himself. It's not in strategy or the military. It's in the Lord. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they're hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into our hand. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. In the midst of the fear and the failure of his father, Jonathan shows us what real trust looks like. It was a deep trust in God that led Jonathan to obedience. And that obedience put Jonathan in a place to see God move in a powerful way. When panic strikes the Philistine army, there is no doubt that it is God who rescued his people. God was always willing and ready to help his people. He just wanted them to trust that he would. Saul didn't trust God and it it led him to disobey and the result was disastrous. Jonathan trusted and God God was faithful to rescue. You know, Saul's kingship started out with so much promise and potential. Maybe Saul would be the one that was promised in Genesis, the one that would come and crush the head of the serpent and restore everything that Adam had lost. But it didn't take long to realize that Saul was just the same old Adam, that he was exactly what Samuel had warned the people about, that he was just the first in a long line of people that would point towards our need for someone so much greater. Guys, here's the bad news, that in this story, each and every one of us is Saul. We have lacked the type of trust in our lives that leads to obedience to God. We've allowed our situations and circumstances to overwhelm us and cause us to fight for control and to put our trust in ourselves. But here's the good news, that there is a son who saves, and that son is Jesus. And he is the one that was promised in Genesis. He is the one that crushes the head of the serpent. And he's the one that rescues us from something so much greater than our enemies. He rescues us from ourselves. You know, around the church today, we have this question that we'll often ask. And it's, have you trusted Jesus? But you know, what exactly do we mean by that question? 
I think the problem is that oftentimes we haven't really clarified what we mean by trust. Every single day, we trust people in different ways. We go to the doctor and we trust that they know what's best for our physical health. We go to a restaurant and we trust that the cook will serve us food that won't make us sick. We get in our car and we trust that other people won't hit us. But what's the difference between that kind of trust and the trust we're called to place in Jesus? One scholar defines trusting in God this way. Trusting God is a essential element of true and saving faith that looks to God and finds peace, strength, contentment, and much more in him and all that he has done, is doing, and will do, and forever in his son, Jesus Christ. Where do we turn in our life for peace, for strength, for contentment? Not where do we say we turn, but when things are difficult, where do we actually turn? Because I don't know what circumstances and situations each one of you are dealing with right now. I don't know what areas of your life feel helpless and you feel unable to control. I don't know what problems feel like there's no good solutions. But I do know that the type of trust that Jesus is calling us to is a deep, intimate trust that knows that no matter what we go through in this life, that Jesus is good, that he loves us more than we can possibly imagine, and that the hope that we have in him it surpasses anything we face in this life. And I don't say that in such a way to trivialize any difficult things you're going through because there are hard things in this life. And trusting God, it isn't about pretending like things in this life aren't hard. But faith is believing that regardless of what we experience, that hope in Christ is greater. I love what G.K. Chesterton says about hope. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or there's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. The hope that we have in Christ, that really is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And that hope is so great because of who it is in and what he represents. Paul puts it this way in Romans 15, for all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. Jesus is the king worthy of our trust because he's the fulfillment of every promise God has made to his people. Do we really believe that? Where have we really put our trust? Is it placed in the one who is trustworthy and faithful? Have you been saved by the son from yourself? Has your trust in Jesus transformed your life to obedience? If it truly has, then in every season of life, we can rejoice and say that he is good. I want to finish with a quote from, from Charles Spurgeon. And I hesitated to share this quote with you this morning because of the high standard it places on our faith. But the truth is, it reminds us 
that our faith isn't our own. It's not accomplished by human effort or by will. Charles Spurgeon says this, if our faith be worth anything, it will stand the test. Guilt is afraid of fire, but gold is not. The paste gem dreads to be touched by the diamond, but the true jewel fears no test. It is a poor faith which can only trust when God, when friends are true, the body full of health, and the business profitable. But that is true faith that holds by the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone, when the body is sick, when spirits are depressed, and the light of our Father's countenance is hidden. A faith which can say in the dire's trouble, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him, is a heaven-born faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we confess now that we have lacked the type of trust in our lives that have led to the type of obedience that you deserve from us. God, and we, we recognize that that type of trust is not something we ourselves are able to, to hold. So we pray that by your spirit, God, that you would help us to trust you, to know that you're in control even when we can't see it, to know that you are good even when all of our circumstances would tell us otherwise, to know that your love for us is beyond our comprehension. God, we pray that as a result of the time in your word this morning, our lives would be lived in glory to you. We love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.